Hi, it's Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre-order now, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, wherever you buy your books. can't really study the outcomes of food as medicine interventions in food insecure households without food for everyone. Because adults traditionally will prefer the children over themselves for having access to the more nourishing foods. So that's a huge factor in kind of research design and also strategy. And that's one of the things that our food partners do very well is try to supply food for the whole family. But distribution within a city, I think, is the broader concept that continually needs to be addressed so that all communities can actually realistically get to a place to buy nourishing food. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. In today's episode, I speak with two subject matter experts in food as medicine. Now you're saying to yourself, self, what does Risa mean by food as medicine? Well, let's start with a broad definition. Food as medicine is the provision of healthy food to prevent, manage, or treat chronic disease within our healthcare system by closing the gap between a medical nutrition prescription and the ability of a patient to fill and consume it on a regular basis. So we're going to do a deep dive into food security, food insecurity, nutrition security, and more. My two guests are Dr. Minako Abe and Jacqueline Albin. Minako and I go way back, way back as in 2002, where we met at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York City. We both worked as emergency medicine physicians there. Minako has since returned to Japan. She's been there nine years, and she works at the Tokyo Cancer Clinic, and she is a lifestyle medicine physician. She is a believer that food is medicine. My second guest is Jacqueline Alban. She's an associate professor of internal medicine and pediatrics. She's the director and certified culinary medicine specialist in the culinary medicine program at UT Southwestern. She's also the medical director of the Food is Medicine Innovation Center for Innovation and Value at Parkland Health. When we get to the conversation, I'm using as my script an article that was published in Circulation October 2023. This is entitled Food is Medicine, a presidential advisory from the American Heart Association. And FYI, the lead author for this paper is Kevin Volk who's one of my medical school classmates. In today's episode, I really want to drill down on this concept of food as medicine. Jacqueline, I'm going to provide a definition and then take it a little further of what you think our listeners should know. Food as medicine is the provision of healthy food to prevent, manage, or treat chronic disease within our healthcare system by closing the gap between a medical nutrition prescription and the ability of a patient to fill and consume it on a regular basis. So the first thing I'd love to say is that it's kind of funny that people need to seek medical advice to know what to eat, because this is a relatively modern concept because our food environment has become so complex. So I really see what we do in food as medicine as the simplification of what to put on your plate. And that looks different for everyone. I work with patients who are food insecure 
and they need access first before we can even begin to talk about different choices. And so sometimes that's food as medicine, it's access and then education. For other patients, they have a busy life and they need us to bring it into a practical way that they could do this every day. How do they get their children to eat it? So it's a full spectrum of understanding where people get their food, how we can make that easier for them and tailored to their health goals and paired all along the way with education. And that's a dose that varies by the person. So it's highly individualized while also being population health. Miyanako, diet. Now you have lived in America. Now you live in Japan. So we all get that diet is different and food choices may be different. In the United States, overall, diet quality is low for many. And this is a driver of chronic disease and health inequities, especially among communities of color and those with low income. Absolutely. And it's not sort of a vilification of food, like this food is good, this food is bad. But the fact is that in all countries, in Japan as well, we're eating more and more processed foods. You know, And that's the one thing that we know. Processed foods, it's meant for a long shelf life. And so, of course, with a lot of food inequity, it's a lot cheaper, mass-produced. But the food that sits on the shelf for years is not made for nutrition. It's made for a long shelf life. So by definition, you're stripping out all the major nutrients. Everything's very highly processed. It's very inflammatory. They're adding in lots of sugars and fats and salts in order to make it taste good. And in America right now, I think 70% of the nation's diet is processed food, which is awful. And of course, that translates to more illness, more cancer. We know that if you increase your processed food intake by 10%, your total mortality rate goes up by 15%. Your cancer rate goes up by 12% just with the intake of processed foods. So even in Japan, it's better than in the US, but we still have about a 37% intake of processed foods within our diet. So I think this is an area that we can improve globally, worldwide, and it is a you know, huge challenge. One of the reasons why I wanted you both on the discussion today is, you know, at the end of the day, sick is sick, people are people, patients are patients. And in my work, teaching ultrasound all over the world, you know, everybody wants the same thing, food, shelter, clothing, education. And focusing the lens on today's conversation, it's not just food, it's healthy food, food that's not going to make us sick and food that's actually going to prevent us from getting chronically ill. So Jacqueline, Americans, about 90% of Americans eat less than the amount of fruits and vegetables recommended by the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans. U.S. diets also typically include less than the recommended amounts of whole grains, beans, legumes, and low-fat or non-fat dairy, and more than the recommended amounts of meat, sodium, saturated fats, refined grains, partially hydrogenated fats, and added sugar. So the first thing that I want to point out here is you started with what we're missing. And that's the message I try to give my patients. Patients expect us to judge their diets. And when they come in, we start with, hey, let's help you get more fruit, vegetables. Every plate that you look up on the internet, whether it's my plate or the healthy eating plate from any hospital or the Lancet Eat Health Commission report, 
half the plate is color from fruits and vegetables. So that is often the most effective strategy is teaching people how to do that. And what I love about culinary medicine is we bring in culinary strategy to the conversation because people won't eat food if it isn't delicious. So it's not the, here's your sad salad, hope it turns out okay for you. It's, hey, how do we actually teach you how to eat food that is appealing to you and your family that you want to make again? And that's really the strategy for getting more Americans and globally getting people to eat more food is making it delicious and nourishing at the same time. Minako, what would our listeners who are mostly Americans be surprised about food, the options, healthy food, unhealthy food in Japan? In Japan, people have this idea that we eat a very healthy diet. We have a lot of you know, centenarians that live here. And that is true. But the United States has a blue zone within itself too, right? So the blue zones are the areas where you have healthy centenarians. And when you look at what each of these cultures and each of these areas, what they're actually eating is 95% whole foods, right? Food that looks like food, that it came, you know, grown out of the ground. And just like Jacqueline was saying, it's not about saying, don't eat this, don't eat that. It's like, what can we add to our plate? And, and especially in these blue zones, and I think in Japan as well, one of the major differences, I think, is we get more legumes in our diet. So a lot more beans, a lot more whole grains. Japan's famous for white rice, but I think the culture is shifting a little bit and we're trying to get people to eat more brown rice and whole grains and a lot of produce and fresh vegetables, right? Seasonal vegetables, things that are local. I just wanted to say, I love that you brought up legumes because that is one of the most accessible, affordable food that any culture can incorporate into what they're making. And the blue zones actually really beautifully demonstrate how nourishing food can cross a variety of backgrounds, preferred foods. And you look at each of the blue zones, their actual dietary patterns are quite different the spices they use are different. They're all focusing on the whole grains, legumes, and produce that's unique to their culture and growing area. So that's the powerful message that there's a flavor of this for everyone. We don't have to all do it the same way. I love that. Jacqueline, food insecurity by definition is having insufficient access to enough food needed for a healthy active life. Nutrition security is an emerging complementary concept that focuses more on the nutritional composition of available foods. I'm wondering if you can go deeper. And also, I believe in one of the podcasts that I listened to where you were featured as a guest, you talked a little bit about your own experience with food insecurity. So first, I want to add that the distinction between food and nutrition security is something that can be complex and semantic from the perspective of the USDA. But in most practical terms, historically, we've focused a bit more on what I call calorie security, which doesn't necessarily meet nutrient needs. It means there's enough food to avoid hunger. And that has not led to great health outcomes. So we are shifting nationally, in part due to the leadership of Dr. Jerush Mozafarian at Tufts and others, to saying this actually needs to be nutrient-rich food that we provide. In the U.S., the most recent data is that one in seven to eight Americans is food insecure. In my area, one in six children is food insecure. And that makes it difficult to sleep without trying to find strategies to address that just because 
we don't have enough food in an individual home is not a statement that there isn't enough food to go around. It's a distribution problem. So we have to see food and nutrition and security as a distribution problem that takes creative solutions and the health system can be engaged in that. My family has a farming background and growing up, that was a huge part of my culture to value where food came from and to understand how we put it on our plate in a productive way. And I work very closely with a dietitian who also grew up in a farming community in a different state and her family experienced significant food insecurity that she didn't even understand as a child. But looking back now that she works with patients, she sees how much that influenced her upbringing. And I think that part of our story is so powerful because when we come with personal experience, it brings us deeper into trust with our patients that have a story as well. You said something about distribution. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean and what that can look like in a household? Well, I'm going to start on the micro level because in Dallas, there is an entire robust area of the city with zero grocery stores. So if you live in South Dallas, particularly Southeast, there are no grocery stores. So where are people shopping for food? I pose this as a quiz question to my students and residents, and it takes them a minute, and then they land on corner store. So the gas station, basically, it's a nice name for gas station. And that's where people are shopping for food. And maybe they have a bad banana up there at the top that's overly ripe or something that gives a little bit of produce exposure. But really, that's where all of the ultra processed foods that you were alluding to earlier, Monaco, that's what people are able to get there. So if you have no transportation, and the resources are not in your community, you are really limited. And this is often the working poor, many single parents, and they're traveling by bus to get to their employment. They do not have time to take three buses to get to a grocery store. So I think the community-driven solutions here are powerful and essential in the food as medicine movement. And I want to share my opinion that I do not think the health system needs to become a food pantry everywhere. I think we need to partner effectively with those who do this work and are expert in it. One of our big partners in this area is Crossroads Community Services, and we work to get our patients access to the nourishing food that's available at the pantries, while also advocating for getting broader resources to the city at large. And because of that advocacy, we are getting a grocery store in South Dallas in 2024. So I'm thrilled about that. And the broader distribution is beyond my expertise, but something that many are working on to reduce food waste and be really strategic about how we apply supply chain techniques to get food in the places where it isn't always distributed. So distribution within a household, I think, is a complex and we don't always know what's happening there. We do know that if you are going to provide food as medicine to a low-income family, there needs to be enough food for the whole family, not just the patient. So that's an important take home is you can't really study the outcomes of food as medicine interventions in food insecure households without food for everyone. Because adults traditionally will prefer the children over themselves for having access to the more nourishing foods. So that's a huge factor in kind of research design and also strategy. And that's one of the things that our food partners do very well is try to supply food for the whole family. But distribution within a city, I think, is the broader concept that continually needs to be addressed so that all communities can actually realistically get to a place to buy nourishing food. 
I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. Minaco, healthcare costs. An estimated 90% of the 4.3 trillion annual cost of healthcare in the United States is spent on medical care for chronic diseases. And for so many of these diseases, diet is a major risk factor. And this was one of your motivators was sort of prevention of chronic illnesses. So we don't need the number for Japan, but I'm wondering how you translate based on your own experience practicing emergency medicine in the United States and what you're seeing in your clients who some are Japanese, some are outside of the country. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter what country you're in, right? The major illnesses that actually plague our population include, you know, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and cancer. And all of these, food has a huge impact. And the real motivator and the message that I really want to be promoting is that we can do some things about this, right? Everybody thinks, oh, well, it's just genetic, you know, and cancer is genetic or whatever. But, you know, cancer is really only genetic 5 to 10% of the time. And that we do have power. And they, it's difficult when you do have food insecurity and nutritious food is difficult to obtain. And that is certainly a huge challenge. However, I think people just don't even know that they have power, that they have agency over their own health when it comes to you know nutrition and when it comes to exercise and, and things like that. So I think that's the number one thing. And so especially with patients who have cancer, eating is a challenge. When they're undergoing certain chemotherapies and other treatments, Eating itself can be a challenge. You can get mouth sores. You can have different taste and texture changes. So foods that you may have loved in the past, you just can't tolerate anymore. So part of the coaching that we do is not only to tell them what types of food are going to be most supportive to their body that are most cancer-fighting foods. It's a matter of changing your mindset about what food is, right? Food is not just pleasure. Food is nourishment. And especially with immune therapies. It's been known to show that there are certain types of food that will encourage certain gut bacteria that will actually change the course of your illness, that will actually change whether or not your immune system can actually respond in order to fight against the cancer. So we focus on the different types of foods that improve their gut microbiome, which directly impacts whether or not they respond to a therapy. So I think that's really fascinating. And we've had a lot of patients, they come in very confused. Often they'll be told by their doctors who don't know that much about nutrition that, you know, it's all about, you know, getting more calories in. So it's okay if you have that milkshake because we just want to increase your calorie intake. So, you know, that might be a good stepping point for somebody who's very, very undernourished, but in order for them to actually be healthy, whatever illness that they're faced with, I think more knowledge about what types of food they they need to be eating is really important. 
I'm curious if you can go granular, like maybe pick a patient with breast cancer or colon cancer or melanoma, pick one. And if you could give not a specific patient, but a sample of a dietary program you would offer, suggest, counsel. So I had a really lovely 42-year-old woman who came to me with stage four renal cell cancer. It had metastasized her lungs. She was losing a lot of weight. And she was started on a new regimen of chemotherapy and immune therapy, but she was losing so much weight that she really didn't have the strength and she was getting short of breath, just climbing a flight of stairs. So we started one thing with one thing at a time. And I think that's really important. You know, I think oftentimes patients feel like they have to do everything perfectly. So you start with the basics, you know, the first step was to get her enough calories so that she wasn't continuing to lose weight. And then from there, we started incorporating different foods that she liked. Like Jacqueline said, everything is very individual, right? Uh, Everybody has a different situation, different living situation, different family situation, cultural situation. So we started with the foods that she liked, that she could eat. And then we started from there and then just adding more and more foods to that list until she was having a diet that was more well-drowned and more supporting her body. And that starts a positive spiral. Right. So once you are eating, once you have more energy, once you have more energy, you're able to sleep better. You're able to exercise more. And step by step, this is how we try and turn our patients' health around in order for them to be more functional and healthier and just feeling much better. Do you remember what kind of foods she liked or what you slowly added in? Because of the food differences, um, taste preferences, where she used to really like things like cream cheese, you know, she wasn't able to tolerate that anymore. So, you know, we started by incorporating different foods, you know, and normally she liked salads, but she just couldn't eat salads anymore. So, you know, we just sort of went through all the different lists of things that she liked and didn't like. And, you know, things like nut butter, like, okay, well, it was hard for her to eat nut butter, but maybe we could put it in a smoothie um, that gave her some more protein and uh, more calories. And then, so we would start with things like that. So much of it's coaching. And you Mm -hmm. know that, Risa, as having trained in that now, that it's really about coming alongside someone as a friend and a subject matter expert at the same time and helping them define what this looks like in their real life. And it brings so much hope. And I have patients in our culinary medicine practice that come to me with diabetes and high cholesterol typically are the most common diagnoses we see or GI disease that needs more fiber. And I had a patient today say, I don't actually know what fiber is. Can we start there? The ER doctors, the inpatient doctors kept telling me about fiber, but I don't know what it is and no one's given me a list. So we bring out the categories of fiber and we find foods that she likes and she goes home with recipes that include those foods. And that's where you can really give someone hope, just as you said, Monaco, to have the agency and self-efficacy to do something as opposed to feeling powerless and helpless that illness does to so many. I love that example. And I'm wondering if you can provide us a patient example from your practice. If someone comes in with obesity or diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, often the three travel together, interventions, food changes that have been successful for those chronic illnesses. I think the top factor is getting people to make more food at home, which they don't always love. But we explore, we actually ask, what is your relationship with food? And some people can answer that immediately. And they'll say, I'm a stress eater. I eat for comfort. I eat to live. You know, I don't really love food. I just 
have it. And you can identify which tactics are going to be effective by asking someone that. So if I have someone that eats for comfort, half of my strategy needs to be teaching them how to define other things that will bring comfort so that they can have a healthier relationship with food. And many times they're already eating healthful foods just too much. So I think sometimes it's portion control. Sometimes it's just teaching them how to get back to simplicity. We have a lot of patients in this part of Texas that are from different Latinx backgrounds. And so you'll have people from Mexico and from Guatemala and lots of other countries, and they bring that beautiful flavor that we love in Tex-Mex. And they have been told by doctors repeatedly that their diet is unhealthy. So let's take the Mexican diet in particular. If you're looking at something that's heavy in flour tortillas and cheese, yes, that's a lot of saturated fat, refined carbohydrates. But if I sit down with someone from that background and I teach them that guacamole and salsa and black beans and corn tortillas are all delightful foods that are high in fiber, high in nutrients, and we celebrate the flavor profiles that they love and then help them take it in a new direction, they feel empowered instead of discouraged. So I think it's really about understanding what foods someone really loves. And you may be starting with baby steps. Maybe we're going to buy frozen pizza and we're going to add a chopped bell pepper to it because that's where this patient is at. And so I think meeting someone where they are that's how they feel like I can actually do this. Love that. Love that very much. I've been quoting a lot from this article published in Circulation October 2023 by Volpe et al. And they basically are saying that there needs to be a research agenda for food as medicine. And a lot of what's been done so far is good, but not quite where they want it to be to actually have proven conclusions. They speak about the WIC program and that WIC has served as a good framework and a good example of why they think food as medicine is going to work. So WIC was a particularly important precursor of food as medicine programs now being developed and refined in that it requires a referral from a healthcare professional to enroll. WIC is a cash-like healthy food prescription program that also provides nutrition education. Several reviews have shown that WIC improves infant mortality, increases birth weight, raises diet quality of beneficiaries, and reduces childhood anemia. Evidence demonstrating the benefits of WIC in terms of infant mortality, birth weight, diet quality, and childhood anemia clearly shows the effectiveness of the program. Jacqueline, how can we translate WIC to FIM, food as medicine? The patient population that WIC serves mostly young children, pregnant nursing mothers. They are the future, and I love that they use them as an example. And I want to bring it out a notch to SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps. So SNAP benefits plus WIC plus things like school lunches are the safety net programs that are the foundation of ensuring food as medicine works. And the beauty of WIC is exactly as you described, that it's done through prescription or referral. So we're able to track outcomes. And I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges when we have such a diverse set of needs is how do you make the healthcare system a broker that is ready to study the impact? And dietary research, very unlike cancer research, is mostly association because we look at someone's total pattern and then we try to make 
conclusions from what we see. And I think that we're going to face that same challenge here. But in general, all of those programs have been shown to improve health outcomes. When people have access to food, they're more likely to take their medications. They're less likely to show up in the emergency room. Their blood pressure gets better. Their A1C goes down. So those outcomes have been shown over and over again with our safety net food programs. I think the question now is how do we connect strategically the health system with food resources and how do we prescribe the right dose of education based on the population and it's going to take a while to get all these answers because there's not only going to be one answer i will shamelessly admit that i applied for an american heart grant we'll see i think it was competitive and they have not announced it yet we continually seek funding and celebrate those who are bringing funding to the table because excellent research requires funding. And the NIH has also advanced in this way and took a request for information just earlier this year on food as medicine priorities. So more to come. I'm so glad you brought up education and standardization in education because few med schools currently offer a comprehensive nutrition curriculum. So Minako, Jacqueline, Risa, like, did you receive a comprehensive nutrition curriculum? Jacqueline, why don't you take it? Then Minako, then I'll share my experience. Definitely not. I learned about nutrition when my family members got sick when I was in residency and it became essential to their own care. So it was on the job training, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, I think maybe we got one day of nutritional training, I think, in medical school. And it's really not something that is prioritized, which I think is terrible because patients come to us thinking that we have training and that we have the knowledge of this. And I think a lot of hospitals and clinics sort of pass it on to the nutritionist, where I think it's something so essential to health is something that really needs to be prioritized in medical school learning. Yeah. And I think this is probably bananas to the ears of our listeners. They're like, what? You're doctors. They didn't teach you about food and nutrition? And the answer is no. I will say that I had two summary statements regarding lifestyle and nutrition when I graduated med school. And this was just based on all the diseases we studied. People commonly say that we don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system in the United States. It's not focused on food as medicine. It's not focused on nutrition prevention. So I did see that seemingly associated with almost everything we learned about, almost everything got worse disease-wise, was tobacco, cigarette smoking. So I said to myself, self, Risa, if you can avoid becoming a cigarette smoker, keep avoiding being a cigarette smoker. And the other thing that I did notice was obesity or a high BMI. Almost everything was worse with or caused by, but it wasn't talked about, it wasn't called out. But I did note that, that there was a an association or a worsening. Even if it wasn't a disease, it could be as much as people's exercise tolerance, knee pain, hip pain, back pain, you know, fill in the blank. And so I think that's the tie-in to the food is medicine and where we are today in 2023. I have a slide in one of my presentations that says, when the problem is the solution with a picture of beautiful food, to make the point that, yes, we've talked about the food culture, particularly in the U.S., but also globally as problematic, But it's a really wonderful thing when that can also become the solution, when food is the answer to the problem as well. And the nutrition education of physicians is something I'm particularly passionate about because if we do not change that, we will not have the legacy impact on this work. And everyone who has a personal reason for pursuing this, it's not enough. 
I have a waiting list more than six months for our culinary medicine practice that we made up. And I think some of the patients don't even know exactly what it is they're going to get when they show up, but they're showing up because they want this information. And it's really compelling that we have to do better. Thankfully, we're moving in the right direction. Rep. Jim McGovern passed a resolution in the U.S. House, really encouraging the necessity of nutrition education and making some key financial arguments, knowing that Medicare is a funder of both residency education and disease. And then subsequently, earlier this year, the ACGME hosted, along with medical school partners, a summit on nutrition education, and those proceedings are online. And then there will be competencies published in early 2024. So stay tuned for a agreed upon set of competencies for medical schools. And there are so many exciting ways that we can incorporate this into education. I want to end our conversation by asking each of you to provide just one thing, one call to action for our listeners' audience. Jacqueline, why don't you take it first, then Minako? This problem can feel big, as can all of society's problems. So I like people to start with their sphere of influence. And that begins with a self-check. Can I be doing better? And how am I modeling this for, in my case, I've got tweens in the house. They're watching everything I do. And so how I eat is modeled for my children. It's modeled for my students and residents. And then when you are in a position to feed others, what are you taking? When you bring someone a meal who's lost someone, it's typically comfort food per se. What if you sent them a beautiful collection of fruit instead? What if your trick-or-treat Halloween basket doesn't have candy and has prizes in it instead? What if the food you order for staff meeting actually contains vegetables? So I think we can expand our influence in our little circle and make a huge impact. And then I'm going to tack on an extra, which is find a way to get a little nutrition education There are more and more online options for physicians and anyone in practice or anyone who is just a person listening, there are ways to get evidence-based education online. So seek those out and ask your doctor for advice so that if they don't know, they will go and look. I love what you said, Jacqueline. And it's true that everything, you know, starts by modeling behavior and starting with the younger generations. So I think the message that I want to most let everybody know is that number one, it's like you do have agency over your health and over what you put in your mouth. And, you know, we make so many food decisions on a daily basis, I think over 220 food decisions in a day. And because food has such an integral part of wellness as well as illness, you know, it has to start young. And so modeling behaviors for the younger generation, for the younger kids. In Japan, we have not like the WIC programs, but food education starts really young in the elementary schools where the elementary school children are involved in making their school lunches together as a group. They sit there, they cook, they serve. Um, They're expected to eat everything on their plate and they're also expected to clean up. So in that way, we are teaching our younger generations what is healthy food, what is well-balanced meal. And then they go on. It's not a quick solution, but it becomes installed as part of their culture and part of their upbringing and part of their health in the future. The Risa wrap-up. Special thanks to Minako and Jacqueline. I loved the conversation and it was as informational as I kind of anticipated, hoped, and expected. Minako, thanks for making the time to call in from Japan as your day was starting. And Jacqueline, thanks for calling in from Dallas as your day was ending. The conversation was really, really informative. And I felt safe, psychologically safe, given that you two are both subject matter experts. 
Audience, some takeaway points. Number one, food is medicine. And what does that mean? Well, as advised by my subject matter experts, start small, start in your scope of influence. Number two, you may think obesity, diabetes, sleep apnea, and other chronic illnesses are just inevitable and there's nothing you can do about it, but you have agency. And by embracing whole foods, keeping it simple, keeping it clean, avoiding processed foods, you can reverse the effects of some of these chronic illnesses. The third take home is healthcare costs. I'm going to repeat this number. An estimated 90% of the 4.3 trillion annual cost of healthcare in the United States is spent on medical care for chronic diseases. So now, more than ever, we should be motivated to reverse these chronic diseases, take care of ourselves, take care of our illnesses, and live healthier lives and spending much less money to support those healthy lives. That's all I have for you this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DePorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued. <laughs>